new episode of Markets and Morality, our eye show where we explore contradicting opinions within the classical liberal free market tent. I will be your host, Adam Bartha, the head of international outreach here at the IAA. And as you know, the point of this show is not to shy away from difficult conversations, but to tackle problems head on. And as much as it's clear that the naked, tyrannical aggression of Russia towards Ukraine is really one of the most horrific acts of the 21st century, it may be less clear what the adequate Western response to the crisis should be. Besides the direct military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine, one of the key tools of Western response was the swift implementation of economic sanctions both on the Russian government and on individuals linked to the Russian government. And instead of the prolonged debates and discussions, the EU, the US and their allies were pretty quick in implementing these sanctions, um, both on the government and on the elites of the Russian government. But is this really going to help to defeat Russia and stop Putin from further aggression? Or will the sanctions have some unintended consequences both within Russia and in the West? I'm delighted to welcome two prominent free market liberals to discuss this issue. First, Jessica Miller, the founder and managing director of Strela Advisory, which is a boutique investigations firm based here in London. Jessica's expertise is in assisting private clients in the resolution of legal disputes and managing sensitive commercial and personal matters. Jessica is also the author of an I article, The Unintended Consequences of Broad-Based Economic San Sanctions. So I think that already gives you a pretty good hint on which side of the debate our guests are going to be. And I'm also delighted to welcome Fred Roeder, the managing director of the Consumer Choice Center, which is a global advocate for the freedom of choice. Fred has been working in the field of grassroots activism for over 10 years, and he is actually a health economist from Germany who has worked on healthcare reform both in America, Europe, and some of the former Soviet republics. And he has also been very active in helping organizing aid to Ukraine in recent months. So if you would like to help our Ukrainian friends, please do make sure to get in touch with him directly. But for now, Fred, Jessica, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Fred, in the early days of the war, everyone was worried that it's going to take ages for the EU to agree on economic sanctions. Going against expectations, Europe was actually pretty swift in implementing broad and wide-reaching economic sanctions on Russia. But do you think that the speed came at the price of precision, or are you broadly supportive of the current sanctions regime towards Russia? Thank you so much for having me, Adam. Um, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't characterize the EU sanctions as very quick. I mean, some sanctions were imposed quickly, but um, I think they could have been, first of all, they should have been instated in 2014 when this war actually began and not eight years later when the war has escalated. Um, and we still, I think now the EU council is discussing more than two months into the war, whether uh, Russian oil exports into the EU should be banned or not. And I think that still depends a bit on uh, potential um, decision, what, what Hungary might say. I'm, I'm not a super expert if they can over uh, throw a veto by Hungary or not. 
uh, but it's, it's like gradual increases of sanctions while the atrocities and the full scale of this war uh, could have been known by everyone within the first couple of days of the war. And just to push you a bit on it, basically you mentioned that these sanctions should have been implemented in 2014 rather than in 2022. But some of the sanctions did come in place after the Crimean takeover by Russia. So do you think that those sanctions didn't go far enough? And if so, why do you think Europe was so hesitant in, in, in implementing some of those sanctions in the early days of the war? Okay, so this, this is a format where free marketeers debate each other. Um, I just want to first state that I'm a free trader and I believe, believe in free trade and global prosperity. And I trade barriers definitely do not increase prosperity. Um, having that said, I think especially among our generation, we had this mantra that we can just trade with everyone, everyone gets wealthier, and that will create more peace-loving people also among maybe illiberal countries you trade with. Um, I, th I think the example of the Russian invasion has shown that, I mean, I'm, I'm German, uh, a country which is heavily dependent on uh, Russian energy exports, basically entire energy strategies, basically on renewables and Russian gas and oil exports. Um, and uh, apparently this interdependencies of economy do not stop people uh, from putting out a war and invasions. Uh, I think it has been widely quoted on Twitter. I think this was Krugman quote um, that two countries with both, with, with, where both have McDonald's would not go in war with each other. This has been unfortunately uh, disproven or proven wrong now. And um, while I am a huge advocate of free trade, I think there's also a geopolitical and strategical component. So do you want to be dependent on the goods of an aggressor? And uh, this is something I think we could already see with the entire debate on 5G, where critical 5G components should come from and where not, when it comes about cyber warfare, um, where I actually had to change my opinion a couple of years ago when I was a kid, do we really want to have um, crucial elements of our communications infrastructure potentially being controlled by the Communist Party of China? I would say no, even if it comes at a higher cost to source in liberal countries, hardware and software in liberal countries. And we see the same now with energy. So I would have said, and I would say since 2014, European countries should have been much more reluctant to uh, rely on Russian energy exports. Um, mm. I think Lithuania is a very good example, which actually worked on this and spent billions on achieving energy independence, which then allows them to actually react um, without much more economic damage once such a crisis like now, like the war in Ukraine has uh, been introduced. And you see, for instance, Germany's hesitancy because German's manufacturing economy is heavily dependent on cheap Russian gas. Um, the UK actually does a much better job on this because first of all, there's a nuclear power strategy. And uh, obviously the UK also has much more of its own energy resources in terms of sure. fossil fuels. True, so changing the past is gonna be difficult, but we can definitely change the future. And Jessica, I would like to turn to you and, and talk a bit about the near past and, and the current present policies, both the UK government and, and the EU. So as you know, many of the economic sanctions not only concern the institutions of the Russian regime, 
but also individuals linked to the governments through either personal connections or through business links. What do you think about the sanctions imposed directly on individuals? Are there scenarios where these sanctions are justifiable or you're critical um, about them in general? Um, I would say I'm generally critical of the imposition of sanctions on private individuals. I think sanctions on members of the Russian government um, and their families, you know, those in the Kremlin, those in the Duma, are one thing because they are individuals who, you know, have influence over Russian government policy and are, um, you know, some are, you know, supporters or enablers, if you will, of the invasion of Ukraine. The issue that I have with the sanctions that have been put on the sort of ever expanding list of oligarchs is the you know, the implications that it has for private property and the respect of private property. And actually, you know, if the point of sanctions is to pressure a foreign government into changing its course of action, and or pressuring a population into a kind of regime change that will also stop a particular government's course of action. I don't see where sanctioning a selection of the wealthiest individuals kind of falls in into either camp. Um, what it does do is create the illusion of a lot of action against the Russian government. But in a, a world that's kind of increasingly multipolar, doesn't have the desired effect. If what the thought process is that if you deprive very wealthy high net worth Russians of their property for a certain amount of time, they will go to the Kremlin and pressure Putin into withdrawing from Ukraine. That's probably not gonna happen because in the world we live in now, those assets can be moved to Dubai or to Turkey or to you know other jurisdictions who are charting their own course with Russia and with the West. So yes, you can sort of freeze these individuals sort of out of the Western system, but we lack the capacity to exert the pressure that we want to have to get these people to do the thing that we want to do. Um, and there's a question over whether that you know those individuals that are on the sanctions list, these private individuals, would even have the kind of leverage within the Kremlin to do what we would want them to do. Sure, but but what do you think the unintended consequences are? And then Fred, I will come to you for a reaction. But I would like to push you a bit more on why you think that they don't have any impact on the Kremlin, first of all, but also second of all, I mean, some of these properties are based in London, they are based in Milan, they are based in Provence. Um, the yachts may be easier to move than the properties themselves, but surely, I mean, a lot of the wealthy Russians linked to the Kremlin and Putin himself um, did have some nice life in EU countries or in the US and now they're being robbed from that. So isn't that exercising some sort of pressure on the individuals linked to Kremlin and, and the Putin regime in general? Um, it, I mean, on the one hand, yes. Well, I think it's encouraging these individuals to go 
elsewhere, I think it is going to create legal difficulties for our governments down the line for the basis on which they've put in sanctions and they have frozen people's assets. If you think two days ago, I think it was Alisher Osmanov has filed against um, the EU for his placement on the EU sanctions list. So I think the rapidity with which sanctions were brought in against these people by the EU and, and by the UK and the, and the US also um, is actually going to create further problems down the line for us um, as those people can go elsewhere and not back to Russia. It's sort of the, the global structure at the moment means that um, you know, there's less incentive for those, you know, those oligarchs, I think, to go and petition the Kremlin or whatever it is that we think that they are going to do to be able to get their houses back in London if there is the possibility of going elsewhere in the world and mm -hmm. sitting without. Because if you remember that if you're on a sanctions list, your assets are frozen. So it's not confiscation. They're just going to sit there until such a time as this situation mm. is resolved. And then if an individual comes off a sanctions list, either by the choice of government or through legal action, those assets will be returned. So yes, on the one hand, we see the, the role of Abramovich, for example, in kind of brokering discussions um, with the Russian government, but that's not all of, the, all of those oligarchs. Um, and there is that possibility to go to Turkey or to go to Dubai or go somewhere else in the world and effectively sit out the war that that as long as there are other places that people can go where you can have a nice life and there is a slightly different view of property and of how to have a relationship with Russia at the moment, there will always be the option to get around sanctions rather than having to put oneself in the uncomfortable position of waiting into politics. Fred, you wanted to come in. Do you think yeah, it's that easy to go this. around these sanctions? So just, just about maybe zooming in on these uh, oligarch sanctions, um, which I don't want to touch too much because I think they're not the most important ones, actually. They're more symbolic, and I would even agree on that. Now, in many cases, they're symbolic. But uh, sure, they can go elsewhere and sit out the war. Uh, I would even agree that most of these oligarchs are not very influential anymore, because that was also something Putin worked on the last 15 years to make them less influential, him concentrating the power around his um, regime. Um, nevertheless, if the assets are frozen, that's, that's pretty bad for you. I mean, yeah, imagine, I don't know, 50% or 75% of your net worth gets frozen and you cannot take it with you. That's, and you know, the alternative is they sit out the war in London, yeah, which maybe is something people don't want to have. They don't want to see like people that definitely were able to enrich themselves massively as part of that regime in the last 20 something years. Um, so that's just like one point. Um, and uh, the second point is more, I think, a bit more smarter mechanism would have to be said, okay, let's go to these top oligarchs sitting in Mayfair or wherever in Chelsea and say, okay, there's a pledge you can take. It's a pledge that you, um, that you just um, basically that you pledge support to Ukraine, donate a certain amount, it's a percentage of your net worth or whatever, uh, to the Ukrainian government uh, to support them in the fight, which obviously would be proof of them that they oppose Putin and Putin would get really upset. Yeah, and then you can say, well, you can keep your Portuguese passport and you can keep your soccer club or football club in, Chelsea, in London and it's all fine. But I think a certain like 
statement from these people um, would be important. I mean, it's a litmus test, yes. Uh, but I mean, you know, Russia has attacked Europe. And this is something to keep in mind. And these individuals made billions uh, as part of the Putin regime. Yeah? And because it's impossible in the last 22 years, it was impossible to be a successful billionaire in Russia or with businesses in Russia without being part of the regime. And you see what happened to Mr. Fodorkovsky, who started opposing Putin. And there are like other uh, successful Russian business people who had to leave Russia and um, also who got stripped most of their assets while trying to leave Russia because they opposed Putin and they had more liberal views. So I, I don't feel really sorry for these oligarchs now that are worried about their frozen assets. Um, and it's pretty easy to open up a Twitter account and it's really easy to uh, donate to the Ukrainian joint forces to support the war and show that they're not with Putin. Jessica, would that be a fair solution? Basically passing the litmus test for some of these Russian oligarchs and if they do that, then the frozen assets would be freed again? Um, okay, so the first thing that, that I would say to be very clear is that I'm not sort of a big apologist for, you know, for the oligarchs or sort of riding out um, in, in their defense. Um, my, my criticism is over putting many, many, many high net worth Russians on a sanctions list as an effective policy tool to, call, to cause Russia to pull out of Ukraine. I don't think it works. And I think it sets dangerous precedents for how quickly um, an individual's assets can be frozen by a state by virtue of their citizenship or perceived link to a particular government, because this is something that we've not done previously really with high net worths from any other countries that are under sanctions like you know, North Korea or Iran or um, Syria. Um, I think that, um, I think that if a, a brokering a deal to, to your oligarchs or high net worth Russians and saying, we'll give you your stuff back if you are vociferous against the actions of the Kremlin, I think it wouldn't work because it would look, it, it's basically sort of a form of duress, I think, to say we're going to freeze your house until you say you are stridently you know, against a government. I don't really see what positive impact, again, that would have on the Kremlin by kind of trying to exert that force on somebody to come out on Twitter and say, we're really, you know, we're really against the actions of the government. I don't think, I, I, I don't see, you know, other than a statement, so effectively, yeah, made un under duress, what, again, good that's going to have or ultimate outcome of encouraging Putin to get out of Ukraine. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, I know Mr. Macron keeps having these long phone calls with Putin, but I, there is probably no diplomatic or um, external economic way of getting Russia to pull out of this is now about probably a military um, result that will lead to it. And um, by using some resources and incentivizing uh, high net worth individuals, Russians that live abroad, maybe with like also European passports or US passports uh, to support the other side, the side that military fights Russia with hundreds of millions each um, has a military impact. You know, if it, if it buys another 500 Bayraktar TB2 drones and they clean up the Black Sea of the Russian Black Sea Navy, um, that has an impact of ending this war quicker. And I think that's just the reality we live in now. You know, it's, it's not a game of chess anymore. It's a full-fledged war 
And uh, it's about how to win the war and not how to change Putin's mind because he will probably not change his mind unless they're really close to absolute defeat. Fred, I would like to push you on a slightly different topic. Um, Jessica already touched on, on this a bit, um, but I would like to ask about the long-term impact of sanctions on the countries that actually impose them. So since the illegal occupation of Crimea in 2014, there have been some sanctions imposed on Russia, which led to an estimated trade loss of 114 billion US dollars between 2014 and 2018. And out of that, Western countries bore roughly $44 billion. Um, and the West is not equal in that. So some countries, for example, Germany bears most of the costs, roughly 40% of the costs, whereas the US bears less than 1%. So do you think there should be a mechanism in between Western allies to equalize some of these costs, which might help in return either Germany or other countries that were a bit more hesitant to act fast and act hard and to help implement further economic sanctions if necessary? No, I think it's just the hangover some economies wake up from by being over-reliant on uh, integrating their economies with illiberal uh, regimes uh, that um, you can see the, say the same for China, right? Because Germany always says, oh, we, we cannot really say anything about the Uyghurs because we have Siemens selling stuff to China. Uh, and that's exactly this uh, interdependencies that are can be dangerous in the long term because if things blow up, like what happened, this February, it gets more expensive for countries that have uh, heavily relied on uh, pushing business with liberal regimes, because it's also not just that private companies from Germany went to Russia to develop projects, but it has been also heavily pushed um, by the various German governments under Schröder and Merkel. Mm -hmm. um, to favor rush pipelines to Russia, like Nord Stream 1 and 2, instead of building LNG terminals and import, for instance, uh, Qatari or uh, US or Canadian LNG. Um, so the, these are results of political decisions, and this makes it now more expensive for the German economy than potentially for the British economy. Um, and I think this is something we also need to keep in mind for the future when it comes to very critical components, not to be, not to have a sole sourcing strategy that's something you know you learn in the first year of business school like in, in supply chain management if you're a smart manufacturer you don't rely just on one supplier um ideally or not not on two but on many um and that's something we should have for chips uh certain plastics components communications infrastructure and uh, also energy mm. and and jessica turning to you for a moment i would be curious to hear your thoughts on the impact of these broad-based economic sanctions on the rule of law. I think you have touched on the topic already, basically investments into the UK and Western countries in general. How do you think the future is going to look like after these sanctions and possibly even more sanctions? At the moment, the EU is debating a new round of sanctions, so it will be probably even harder um, to invest for certain Russian or or foreign um, companies to invest in the EU. Um, what do you think the impact will be long-term on the rule of law, property rights, and Western capitalism in general after these harsh economic sanctions? The, the problem that we have with Russia and the actions of Russia is that we've never needed to put sanctions on a state whose economy is so closely enmeshed in ours and on whom we have such a growing or 
have grown such a big dependence, particularly, well, on the one hand, on energy, and then on the other, for all of the industries that have grown up in, you know, in London, or London grad, as people like to call it now, um, but also certain EU member countries as well. Um, and so we're, what both the EU and the UK are trying to do is to chart, I think, quite a tricky course when it comes to the implementation of sanctions, because you are trying to exert as much pressure on Russia, but without damaging economies at home. But the reality is that the most impactful sanctions will be the ones that can hurt the most, because the, they are the ones that will have to go at the Russian state and the means of the Russian state of making money and having global influence, but they will be the most painful for us, particularly on, on energy. So it's a bit of a, it's a real testing time, I think, for the EU and for its capacity to pull together in the face of an external aggressor where in previous times, in different, uh, you know, different issues have been, you know, called the, for the EU to kind of come together. If you think refugees from Syria, or you think, the, you know, the economic crisis. At these moments, the EU has been very bad at acting cohesively, and it's starting to head a little bit that way, trying to appease member states when it comes to sanctions. So, the notion of um, banning oil exports from Russia is being incredibly lobbied against by Greece and Malta and Cyprus. The notion now of not you know doing any more providing any more professional services to russian companies again is going to be devastating for cyprus no luxury goods lobbied against by italy it's really mm. it's really causing fractures within the eu over how you sanction a country like russia that has its kind of tentacles in different states with different means and supports different parts of their economy um with the uk what Yes, there are the, you know, I'm not going to go over the kind of the oligarch sanctions. What our government is putting in, and this does have impact for the rule of law way down the line, are ancillary legislation ostensibly to support our actions against Russia, but which actually have an impact on us and on, you know, property rights and on um, how we behave towards individuals from others from other states. So things like removing tier one visas is a total own goal policy, I think, by the British government. So few by this point are given out to Russians. We're supposed to be global Britain. This is post-Brexit. We need investment. We need people to come here. And had a total knee-jerk reaction in removing this, uh, this way for entry into the UK and the way to source investment into the, into the UK because it makes for a really nice media headline to say, we're stopping Russian dirty money coming in to the UK because we're getting rid of tier one visas, when the better thing to do, which is probably more onerous, requires more effort and more investment on the part of the government, is just make the process better. If you do better due diligence, if you scrutinize the people coming in more, you'll be able to keep the good investment and keep out the money you don't want, but what you do retain is a way to encourage people to move to the UK and to invest here. What we've done is just pulled it. Mm. overnight um which is just i think just such poor policy making so the rule of law implications i think are also how quickly our government is bringing in ancillary knee-jerk reactive legislation under the auspices of targeting russia but actually is legislation we will sit with way down the line um once the situation with ukraine is resolved sure um so basically hardcore vetting of individuals is still much better than 
uh, a blanket plan. Uh, I think that makes sense. Um, Fred, I would agree just, on that for there is some agreement during the debate. That's always good. Um, Fred, last point to you. I would be very curious to hear your thoughts related to a sentence that you have said earlier, basically where you mentioned that now is the time to win the war rather than try and hope to change Putin's mind. Um, as you know, it seems like the vast majority of Russians are supportive of the war at the moment. And the short-term impact of the economic sanctions on Russia was pretty bad. The, their currency, the ruble, fell to an all-time low. People were queuing up for money. But now, in the medium term, it seems to be that the situation has stabilized. Um, people are still arguing that the long-term impact on Russia will be harsh. But my question is, do we want the long-term impact to be harsh? And if so, who are the individuals that we want to punish? Do we want to punish the Russian government and the related oligarchs? Or because it has grown into a full-scale war with the support of the vast majority of the Russian population, is now our goal to cause shortages, economic depression in the long term that would impact the general Russian population? Yes. <clears throat> that's a very good question. Uh, so let's keep in mind, before the war started, the Russian economy had the size of Australia's economy. Uh, so a country with 130 million people had the same economy, like an oil and gas rich country with 130 million people had the same size of GDP as uh, a country with like 25 million people, 24 million people. So that, that's Russia. It looks big on a map, but actually its economic footprint is actually smaller than many of us think. Um, so. And this will, of course, go massively down now anyways, because the war is expensive and there are sanctions in place. Um, given the massive popular support of the war in Russia and very limited, and we saw some protests at the beginning, but apparently the, uh, the appetite for regime change is very limited. Um, I think for secu the security of Europe, uh, the best strategy would be to say, okay, let's just build a massive economic fence around Russia. Um, at least when it comes to like the richest trading blocks in the world, which is the EU and the US, put and then put Japan, Canada, the UK, and Australia, New Zealand on top of this, and basically contain Russia uh, to recover from from this war until they have like figured out their stuff. Yeah, because it's not just like this one thing in two thousand two uh, twenty twenty two, right? We we have Syria going on with like Ru Russia causing havoc there for years. Uh, we had started the, the Crimean Donbass campaigns in 2014, um, the attack and partial annexation of Georgia in 2008, two wars in Chechnya. So it, it keeps going on with human uh, with atrocities and human rights violations, not just within Russia, but like invading other countries and causing misery. Um, so crippling Russia's ability to fly jets and bomb hospitals uh, should be probably the midterm uh, policy goal, even if that means it costs us money, if that saves lives, it's probably the right thing to do. Thank you, Fred. And thank you, Jessica, so much for the discussion. If you are interested in Jessica's further arguments, then I would recommend to check out her article on the IA blog. Um, but for now, thanks to your audience for joining. Um, if you want to continue the debate, then do share your thoughts below this YouTube video or follow IA London on Twitter. Also, massive thanks to our donors, without whom the work of the IA would not be possible. If you do wish to become one of these donors, please do consider subscribing to our Patreon account, where you can receive some exclusive content and have a sneak peek into behind the scenes as well. 
But for now, thanks a lot for joining us and I hope to see you in two weeks time again.